IT sometimes is the easy part of this job. It's the people, it's the process, it's thinking about culture impact and really making a difference in, in the way we evolve healthcare. And welcome to a special live episode of the Better Care Podcast, where we tell the stories of clinicians, healthcare leaders, and innovators who are improving the way clinicians work and deliver care. I'm Spencer Holloman. I'm the SVP of Marketing and Evidence Care. And this is a special episode because the live version of this episode is exclusive to Chime members. So welcome to all those joining us from Chime in the audience today. And thank you to Chime as an organization for co-hosting this event. I'm really excited that you get to hear today Evidence Care's Amy Deaton interviewing Jeff Sturman from Memorial Healthcare System. I'll let her introduce herself and Jeff, but if you have any questions during this interview, there's a Q&A tab over on the right side of your screen where you can submit a question and we'll leave some time at the end for answering some of those. So thank you again for being here. Amy, the stage is all yours. Great. Thanks, Spencer. I'm thrilled to be hosting this special episode of the Better Care Podcast. Again, my name is Amy Deaton. I'm the COO with Evidence Care. And on the show today, we have Jeff Sturman. It's always fun to have these conversations with a former colleague. And I want to share a little bit about Jeff um, in order of importance. Jeff is a husband and dad to two college boys, an avid tennis player, a Big Ten fan, and a seasoned healthcare executive who is the Senior Vice President and Chief Digital Officer at Memorial Healthcare System and South Broward Hospital District. Thanks for joining me today, Jeff, and welcome to the show. Aim, it's great to be with my friend here, and, and uh, that's first and foremost for me. I get to spend a little bit of time with my friend, so it's great to be here. Thank you. Great. Well, I wanted to, first off, congratulate you on another recent accomplishment, Congrats on your Chime board appointment. Uh, maybe we can warm up here by having you share, why did you want to be part of the Chime board? Sure. So, no, thank you. And and uh, the appointment doesn't formally start, I don't think, until January 1st. I'm still getting my my feet wet with knowing a little bit more, but I'm excited about it. And I've been a longtime member of Chime. I think Chime is a terrific organization. I'm not just saying that because there's probably um, someone that works for from Chime on this call right now, but there probably is. And so it really is a great um, avenue for us to collaborate and CIOs to network and learn from each other. And that's really what my mission is all about. I think relationships are really important and never can we all know all the answers. Um, I certainly don't. And I learned so much from my colleagues across the industry and we get to share information. And why be on the Chime board? One, to influence exactly that, the programs that they have, to be influential in their evolution. Uh, we're in such a fast-paced environment that it's hard to keep up to date. As a CIO or chief digital officer, it's hard to keep up to date. As an organization that's focused on this industry, you want to make sure you're relevant and you want to make sure that you get the best information and things that are most pertinent to all of us. And hopefully I can represent a little bit of all of us to chime uh, through that process of being on their board. But it's also great fun to really, again, be part of a group of people that I think are shaping the way delivery of healthcare works. And, and Chime is absolutely part of that delivery of healthcare. You can say that technology and digital guys don't get to deliver healthcare. I would argue that all day long. 
Um, and I think we are absolutely the forefront of delivering, um, of changing, of adopting uh, the way healthcare is is being managed. Uh, so that's why being, being part of Chime Board is, I think, important to me. That's great. I think you're going to provide so much insight and, and be a valuable member there. So let's keep going with that. I was looking at your bio and I noticed that you are both a CHCIO and a CDHE. So really, this seems to reflect your role um, and during your tenure at Memorial. How has your role evolved over the past five years at Memorial? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, and I get asked this a lot. What's a CIO? What's a CDO? What's a CDH, whatever, O. And I think the reality is that every organization has to decide what they want to define that as and what they want it to be. And I can only speak for what we think of it at Memorial, why the shift happened. And the shift happened for me about three and a half years ago from a very traditional, what I'll call CIO title to a CDO title. Um, in part, that was to modernize a lot of the thinking and the strategy that sat behind or sits behind uh, the chief information officer role. And when I talk about modernization, I get the great benefit and fortune to be influencing and being a part of not just our executive team, but really looking at this from a very strategic and operational lens of the way we deliver care again. And so it's not just about IT services. In fact, I would, again, argue that IT sometimes is the easy part of this job. It's the people, it's the process, it's thinking about culture impact and really making a difference in, in the way we evolve healthcare. Memorial is, and just for the background for maybe some of the listeners, Memorial is a great organization. We're six hospitals. We're, as you mentioned, the South Broward Hospital District. We're about 2,000 beds in total. 2,000 and then some providers across our medical staff. Our employed base of physicians is relatively small in the grand scheme of our total medical staff. We have about 400 employed providers, with most of them being very specialist um, in background, not primary care. So we have a small primary care footprint in part because we didn't want to compete with the primary care providers in our community. And we, we hold that very important to uh, what we do as a as our genesis of being a community-based healthcare system. But we've grown up, and we've grown up to become this very complex, academic, tertiary care, quaternary care-based healthcare system with all the complexity that probably most of, of your listeners have, and then some. And so it was very intentional, I think, on my leadership team to say, the chief digital officer is again impacting not just IT, my role but gets to impact and think about, for example, consumer experience and how we engage consumers at a different level. So thinking that consumers are always going to come to us was what I kept on hearing that we don't have to worry about it. Patients, consumers are, in fact, consumers rel relatively novel still and I know I don't need to debate that and talk about that more because everyone talks about consumer versus agent versus member or whatever the industry you're in, you call them in healthcare. But thinking about how we really think about engaging consumers at a different level. So I have responsibility not only for IT and biomedical engineering or clinical engineering, but I also have responsibility for our call centers. So contact center report up through me. And 
about three and a half years ago, those contact centers were very diverse in one capability, two in technology, no standardization. So we've really been on this journey to more, uh, again, I'll, I'll overuse it probably this morning, this afternoon um, and talk about modernization, but thinking about modernization, not in the aspects of just technology, but thinking about it in terms of people, organization, process, governance um, has been part of the rationale that sits behind the title now. And again, many CIOs are evolving and having various roles and responsibilities, whether it be operations, innovation, strategy. Um, I get my feet wet in kind of all of that. Well, I applaud Memorial for being forward thinking in that a transformation and holistic view uh, there. You know, you had mentioned our audience. And so we have folks probably listening that are in the same seat that you are in, that CIO or CDO role. But we also have folks in healthcare technology that are looking at that same trajectory. So maybe can you share a little bit about your professional history and and your journey into where you are today, not just kind of at Memorial, but taking a step back even further? Sure. I tell my kids, as you mentioned, I have two college-age kids. I say, if you want to pick something easy, not complex, if you want to make a lot of money, pick anything but healthcare. But <laughs> uh, but no, it, it, it's a great and energized environment. I mean, I think we all know we're all in healthcare. It's so fast moving and, and changing these days that for a lot of times, a lot of the history, and I've been doing this now for too many years, is that we always felt maybe a little bit stifled or a little bit behind with regard to technology and healthcare and where the industry was as compared to many other industries. And I still would argue that again, we're probably behind, but we're catching up and we're catching up fast. But my journey has been, I don't know, not that interesting, but I'll tell you about it. So I have my master's in health administration. I have my master's in business and uh, undergrad in psychology and chemistry. So I thought I was going to be a doctor. I come from a family of doctors. It's kind of all I knew. And that family of doctors quickly came to me and said, no, nah, you don't want to do that. Go do something else and take a couple of years after college. So I, I listened to that advice. Um, maybe that advice was partially listened to and partially uh, provided to me. And so I had the great opportunity to go get my master's and really didn't look backwards and said, okay, I really love the idea of management, of thinking about healthcare, but I'm a healthcare guy through and through, both by family and, and genetics almost, and certainly the passion by which I want to be a part of something. And so um, I really combined a lot of my desire to be in the healthcare industry with what I thought I was maybe okay at. I liked doing, I was okay at, and learning. And so I still, after grad school, didn't know what I wanted to do. So what do you do after grad school when you don't want, don't know what you want to do? You go into consulting. <laughs> um, and, and consulting was a great way for me to learn the industry, to be broadly exposed to many different organizations, many different people start influencing and impacting by doing project work. What it didn't give me a sense of was the politics, was the organization structure, was the internal workings of healthcare systems. And I felt like that was a gap. So I made a very intentional decision to leave consulting and go join one of my clients. And at that time, that client was Memorial Healthcare System. Um, I had been consulting for 10 years, started in big consulting, 
At the time, it was big six, big eight. Um, now I think it's big four. I loved those kind of relationships I built. But, you know, I had a young family getting off the road, learning the operations um, was really important to me to see a different side of things. And so Memorial offered me a job, again, my client, and moved from Chicago to South Florida, where, oh, it's beautiful most of the year down here. Um, in Chicago, it's beautiful three months out of the year. I happen to think Chicago might be the best city in the summertime in the country, but that's still a bias of mine. And I love, I love the Midwest. I'm a Midwest boy. My wife's a Northeast girl, but we'll forgive her for that. Um, and so, so yeah, it's uh, it was a great move to learn Memorial, learn healthcare operations. And then because I'm a little schizophrenic, I said, you know what? I've done a lot of work for about eight to 10 years at Memorial. I'm going to go back into consulting and be at a different level in consulting. That's where I got the opportunity to work with my dear friend, Amy, and so many others who I think are among my closest friends. And we got to build a company together. We got to deliver. We got to sell. We got to learn a, a part of the business that when you work at big consulting, sometimes you don't get exposed to. When you work at a startup, entrepreneurial, eat what you kill model, take care of each other and become a family really together. That's what we got in our four hour life, Amy. And uh, that taught me so much more with regard to relationship building. And it taught me about business development at a different level. I happen to think selling and business development is either avid or you don't in a lot of respects. So some of it can be learned and some of it's probably just who you are by nature. And so I got to be very much a part of a building of a partnership. And then Memorial came calling again. And uh, my former boss retired six years ago and uh, said, would you ever entertain coming back to Memorial? And I said, well, I'm a partner in a consulting firm. What, why would I do that? And uh, make a long story short, which is long, I know, sorry for all your listeners. It just was a unique opportunity to come back and shape a community at a different level, be part of an executive team that I could help, again, influence. IT was not now what I would say sitting behind the scenes and being this very technically driven aspect to what it is that people like I historically have done. It was a strategic lever by which we really look at digital and technology to deliver care. And that's what I've been enjoying to do here at Memorial. I love that story and it comes full circle. And, and thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You know, a challenge that I'm hearing from a lot of my clients and prospects, and it's probably not foreign to, to folks on the phone or yourself is, so how do you maintain operations while still exploring digital innovation, especially in an environment where Costs are increasing. Reimbursement is not increasing at the same pace. There are shrinking margins. You know, I imagine you're grappling with this at Memorial. And can you share some insight on this topic? And then we'll pull the thread on, on it a little bit more. I, I wish there was a simple answer to this. And there's certainly not. I mean, everything in life and everything at work is a balance. And if I could switch the the, the light switch on, and it just stays on and I get to focus on all innovation and thinking about the new and how we change, that would be my preference. The reality is that's probably less than 50% of what we do all day long. We're putting out fires, we're dealing with the here and now, we're focused on 
optimizing and operationalizing the systems that we already have. And then we're also thinking about all these net new things that we know we need to stay out in front of. I don't have this huge team of people just dedicated to innovation and thinking about change. I have a huge team in the grand scheme of things. I have almost 400 people that are focused in IT and digital on all of those things of keeping the lights on, maintaining what we have, doing an upgrade for Epic or implementing Workday on our ERP side, while also thinking about how are we going to take care of patients in a more predictive, proactive way, whether it be through remote patient monitoring, hospital at home programs, thinking about artificial intelligence and the policies and regulations that need to go in there. In fact, we were talking about this in an executive meeting today. Everything we do at Memorial should be tied back to a strategic initiative, a strategic part of our plan. So everything that we do at Memorial in IT should support what we're doing from an enterprise perspective. If we're doing an enterprise plan around primary care, I should be looking at what sort of tools and technology and digital is going to be influencing our primary care strategy. If we're not focused, I'm going to make this up, if we're not focused on you know rehabilitation and that's not a primary strategy for our future, then why am I implementing a rehab module? That probably isn't the most pressing priority. Bad example, because the reality is we are focused on rehab and we are implementing a rehab module. <laughs> but yeah. those, are, those are how we need to balance, I think, the priorities. It's not a matter of, are these IT things important to me? It's, are these IT things important to our operators, our leaders in clinical areas, revenue cycle, business areas? And of course, I need to protect us and prioritize the things around infrastructure and security and keep sure that our computers and equipment are up to date. And no better person is equipped with that knowledge than my more technical team. And again, now I'm balancing what operations and clinical leadership says they want with where money has to be put to make just the here and now work. So let, let's go with that a little bit more. We're wrapping up 2023 and looking um, towards 2024. What are some of your system's top priorities strategically? I'm probably no different than everyone else out there. First and foremost, and I think we sometimes lose sight of this, is we're, we're healthcare. We're healthcare organizations. So quality and safety and clinical has to be part of your strategy. You look at data and you look at the quality data over the last couple of years, the industry as a whole has lost a lot of ground, whether that be as a result of COVID or labor shortages or whatnot, we've lost ground in quality and safety. So there has to be a focus and a renewed focus, I think, on clinical. That being said, there are so many other areas where I think we're probably very much like everyone else. And that is, we do have labor shortages. We have nurse, huge nursing shortages. I still, and I'm amazed by those that I've talked to though, that don't have a tremendous amount of still traveling nurses, you know, external from your organization, not employed by your organization. Those that have figured that out, I give you great kudos. We have figured it out to some degree, but we're still figuring it out. And so labor is a real problem that we're addressing, working with different academic organizations, nursing schools, medical schools in the area to look at the labor force and figure out how we get new entrants in quicker. 
and looking at digital tools that we can use from not only a retention standpoint, but be more predictive in analytics and artificial intelligence in recruiting the right people. Amazingly, people don't necessarily want to move to South Florida. I don't know why. I think it's great down here. But there's a shortage of qualified resources, I think, just generally speaking. So whatever way we can get out in front of that, I think it's important. Efficiency, another huge area of opportunity. Again, I mentioned we're six hospitals. And by history, those six hospitals acted not independently from each other, but in a lot of respects, almost competitive with each other. That's shifted in the last number of years, which is a good thing. But we have great opportunity to think about how we do things in common. My area where I live is a fairly tight geography physically. And thinking that I need to position service lines, for example, oncology or cardiology or rehabilitation or pediatrics at every single one of my or hospitals may not be the best way of thinking when these hospitals are a matter of miles away from each other in some respects. They're not necessarily right next door, but they're not that far from each other. So I think we need to think a little bit differently about efficiencies and where we play in a particular market. And that gets to things we'll talk about later with regard to command center and throughput and ED patients getting into beds quicker and discharged from the hospital quicker. If you look at my statistics, and I'm happy to tell you this, it's not a good news story. We have a huge volume of patients that are discharged after 2 p.m. Well, we should think about what's good for the consumer experience and think about where that really can meet the needs of our patients more equitably, more effectively, more efficiently, and get patients in and out in a manner that is, again, a little bit easier. And so efficiency is a huge area of a focus for us. And we're thinking about managing by the numbers. So manage with data. Yeah, I know that sounds almost not that novel. Everyone should be managing with analytics and data. We have not been, as an industry, I think, taking advantage of the data, the information that we have all at our fingertips in a manner that really can move the needle. And we're finally getting there. We're getting there with vendors like you guys, candidly. We're getting there with vendors um, like Epic and others that help us look at data to make better and more informed decisions. I'll, I'll, I'll pause in a moment, but I want to give you one more that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. That I think is just paramount for our future as, a, as an industry, and that's consumer experience. It's something I love to play in. It's something that we're really trying to figure out I think both as an industry and as Memorial Healthcare System, this is a shift. Are we going to be, no offense to anyone, are we going to be physician-centric, provider-centric, or are we going to be patient-centric? And we're making a very conscious decision that, and you don't, you don't have, you can be both, by the way, and I think we should be both. But at the end of the day, we're here to deliver care to patients, to our consumers. And so we're really making a very, significant investment to ease the burden on our consumers. And sometimes that those stakeholders might be ease the burden on our physicians, which translates to ease the burden on our consumers, which is a good thing. We can talk more about some of the innovations and digital capabilities that I think can help us get there. But 
consumer experience and how we engage consumers and expecting them just to come to us, I think is a, is a really old way of thinking. And we have to start getting out to them. We need to be proactive. We need to, again, be predictive. We need to help our consumers know how to navigate healthcare and consume it in a way that's just easier. And if I can figure that out, then maybe I'll, I'll be um, a lot richer and retired earlier. But I think we as, a, we as an industry, and the, certainly the leadership from Chime, I think this is something that we're all grappling with. I mean, I'm sure that priority list is very much aligned with a lot of the other health systems out there, but it's certainly a, a worthwhile effort in the coming year and, and lots of work um, related to that. It's funny that you had mentioned the data piece. I had recently read an article that said that healthcare systems, um, health systems are using 3% of the data for actual actionable insights. So like we we collect all this data, but what are we actually doing with the data to, to move the needle on, on the next step? So certainly um, hearing a lot about that as well. So you talked about all of these different priorities, balancing operations, looking at innovation. You have a six hospital system. So this, as I was preparing for the podcast, I'd gotten some questions from folks that were interested in, you know, given the variety of stakeholders that you have, you've got clinicians, you have operators, you have finance, you have technology. How do you prioritize these projects once they get into the queue? Like, how does that go for Memorial? I won't say that we have a rigorous, that's probably not the right word, but we do have a process, a governance process. Our governance process helps us to balance that that plan, that prioritization of initiatives. So we have very focused clinical governance and business governance that rolls up ultimately to our executive team, which is our, our very old way of saying our computer steering committee. And so that committee really helps to prioritize. And like I said earlier, if it doesn't tick one of those strategic initiatives at the healthcare system, it probably doesn't get managed at a critical or lights on priority. So probably not different from many other places. We have four levels, lights on. So these are must haves, gotta do them, whether it be upgrades or replacement of our Wi-Fi infrastructure or things that are no longer in support that we don't wanna be at risk for to critical, high, medium, and low. And candidly, if you're gonna get something or ask for something and it's low, medium, or even high in many cases, it's probably not going to hit the radar this year. It doesn't mean it's not important. It just probably means it means it's going to be prioritized lower and we'll probably need to turf it by a period of time. Now, everyone knows the game, so no one ever ranks their things low or medium even, but we as a committee can redefine what things are. And if we see that something is, come on, it's not a clinical quality, safety, financial impact, it's probably going to be ranked pretty low. Um, if it doesn't hit one of our strategic levers, it's going to be probably ranked medium or low. And so some of those things just don't happen. And that's okay. Again, we reevaluate things all throughout the year. And that's the reality also is that we're a very nimble organization. We're not mired in bureaucracy and red tape. There is a fairly... Uh, small group of executives that get together every week to look at priorities and things that we're focused on. It's not just a budget review. 
It's what are the strategic things that we need to be doing. And things come up during the year that you didn't think about in your budget season. I'm just starting. We're a weird, we're a weird fiscal year. We're May 1st. So we're just starting our budgeting process right now, our capital and operating budget for fiscal 25. And fiscal 25 starts May 1st of 24. And so all the things that you think you need to do, you never can figure out all of those things. So as long as you're nimble and flexible enough that you can manage and you're given the authority and the responsibility to manage to your budget, we've been very successful by meeting the needs of our, of our stakeholders or of our patients, of our physicians. And yeah, we don't do everything that everyone wants to do all the time because it's impossible. So we set the right expectation. Then this is a lot of communication. This is internal marketing. This is creating buy-in. And by the way, we don't do anything if there's not the right executive sponsor. If we don't have the right executive sponsor, whether they, that be someone from operations in combination to IT, if there's not someone who says, I own that project or that need, it doesn't happen. And I'm the first one to say in our, our executive meeting, I don't know who owns this. We're not going to do this. Now, if it's really important, someone typically steps up. But I think those are really important aspects to governance. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not just the technology. Who's going to operationalize the output um, ongoing? So we, we might have some foundation folks listening as well. So um, kind of addressing this, what do you look for in your technology partners? So let's say they've checked the box. They are hitting a strategic initiative. What do you look for in your technology partners? If you want to work with Memorial, you got to beat this. Well, a couple of things. I mean, really, I think relationships are, as I said, hugely important. And you, you want to create trust. You want to create trust. You want to be authentic. You want to be there solving a problem. You don't want to be someone who's there looking for a problem. You want to be there to solve a problem. And so many times, whether you're in sales or business development or a vendor, and you're making a cold call or you got introduced to someone, you're sometimes there trying to sell a solution from the get-go without even knowing what you're trying to solve for the person on the other side of the phone. I think that's dangerous. I think, you know, we're all very, very busy. And not that I'm going to call someone all the time knowing that I have this problem and you need to address it for me. So there is this, again, balance by which you, sometimes vendors can come up with some really great ideas that can move the needle that maybe we didn't think about. Maybe there's a use case somewhere else. And so I look for that education. I look for that collaboration. I look for that knowledge sharing. If a vendor provides to me, not in a salesy way, but in a true collaboration and education way, I, I get attracted right away. I think those are really important things for us all to think about because like I said earlier, none of us can know everything. I don't know everything. I know a lot about what Memorial's doing today. I know a lot about what I think Memorial should do in the future, but there's probably 10,000 other things Memorial should be doing that someone else somewhere has solved. And if I don't learn from those partners, those vendors about how to move the needle, then I'm probably not being innovative. I'm not being thoughtful and I'm not being, for my own sake, collaborative. And that's what I look for from you know these relationships. It's not an us versus them mentality. It's us together trying to solve this very complex world of health and wellness. 
right? To great. So along those lines, talking about innovation and technology partners, what are some of the biggest innovations or things that have you excited in in the coming year? Yeah. You know, everyone's talking about AI, so I'll hold that one for them uh, because I will talk about it too. But there's so many things. I mean, the list is so long that we could probably spend the entire, I don't know how long we have, another, you know, 15 minutes or so, um, just talking about what are those new things that get you really excited. At the end of the day, I get really excited about making healthcare easier. That That's what I, as I've said many times over now, if we can just make this a little bit easier to consume and digest, that I think we're doing justice to our industry. If we can put health and wellness in the hands of our consumers so that we're not just thinking about healthcare being delivered in the four walls of our facilities, of our hospital, but that we are thinking about how health and wellness is getting translated by the normal person, whatever that is, um, who's not actually working every single day in this industry, and they can take advantage of information to make better decisions for themselves. Because the biggest advocate in healthcare is usually yourself or a family member. It's not your provider. It's not your physician. It's not your hospital. It's yourself. So if we can get tools and leverage digital technologies, like what we do with MyChart in Epic, and get that in the hands of our consumers to be more informational, better in providing data, I think that's a win. So that gets me excited. Prediction, proactive care. So this gets to AI, I mean, and many other areas. You know, whether I can see a patient in the hospital deteriorating before we can actually physically see it, but based on data and analytics and artificial intelligence and models that we put together, we can see certain outcomes that may be preventable. That would be huge. And that is huge. And that's already happened. I love the idea of ambient listening and creating a world by which our providers can be focused on a patient and really sitting with them face to face, listening to them, caring about them, and not being worried about the technology where it can be documenting for them. And we're doing that with our partners with Microsoft and Epic, and it's a game changer. It will, I think, change the way in which we think about better care. It's a better satisfaction for the providers. It's better satisfaction for the patient. It's better clinical documentation. So it's kind of better all the way around. And yes, it's expensive today, and hopefully that price will come down. But those are some real game changers. And the last thing, and I, I mentioned wellness, but the idea that there are organizations out there that are not just focused on how we think about healthcare today, but how we think about improving outcomes for a person who doesn't need healthcare today, but would in the future and extend their life like Blue Zones. And if you haven't heard about yeah. Blue Zones, you should read about Blue Zones. It's it's awesome. It's not just about diet, it's lifestyle, it's exercise, it's where you live, it's how you engage social interactions. It's social determinants of health. These are absolutely huge aspects to healthcare and our well-being. So transportation and having a partner or someone you can speak to, these are real things. And this gets to the equity and diversity and inclusion conversation that I think is a real one. 
And I love uh, hearing how health systems are moving beyond those four walls and, and looking um, a little bit differently at um, healthcare. Um, I want to save some time for audience questions, and I see a few coming in. So I'm going to start cherry picking off of that list. And so uh, questions come in related to maintaining operations and um, balancing innovation. What about your thoughts on IT outsourcing versus keeping IT staff in-house? Any thoughts on that, Jeff? Yeah, it's a great question. And and this has been a very cyclical, I feel like, mm-hmm. conversation over many years. So I've been at this, I can't believe I can, I'm going to say close to 30 years, but it is a cycle that happens. And I think there are real places in healthcare operations that are certainly prime and ripe for outsourcing, whether that be linen services or housekeeping or cafeteria and even aspects of maybe customer service on the IT side, service desk. I think there are the right organizations that can do this really well. And I think it depends on where you sit. So if you're in an area and I'm, I'm not happy, I don't happen to be in an area where recruiting IT resources is so incredibly hard, but we do have some gaps. And so I'm looking at augmenting my team potentially on the service desk, the IT help desk, where maybe some of the easy stuff I can turf to a third party while we can be focused more on the complex stuff and really engaging with consumers and not just outsourcing, but creating automation in some respect. So I, I know that wasn't the question, but I think you need to look at this from a multiple of ways, whether it be outsourcing, whether it be automation, what can you automate? the easy stuff? And then where do you really want to focus your internal resources? I don't think any of us can have enough resources ever. I don't think any of us can have, at least for me, enough primary care providers. So I'm thinking about leveraging telehealth and some of the outsourcing capabilities in our in our telehealth partners for actually delivering of care. So outsourcing is a unique and different thing for every organization to really figure out. I'm not going to be an organization that outsources my entire IT organization. Many places have tried it. Many places have tried it and have failed. Some have tried it and have been moderately successful, I think. So it just depends on your organization, your culture, what you're able to accommodate. And I know everyone is trying to look at outsourcing or managed services from a vendor or consulting standpoint. It's annuity-driven business. I get it. It's it's brilliant from that standpoint, financially, and what you can serve. And I think there are spot areas that make great sense. I would just caution, do it for the right reasons. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch. I've been reading in the news, different health systems going that route, and we'll see how that all, uh, how all that turns out. So going to the questions again of Potpourri for 500. Um, what's your take on how clinicians are interacting with the EHR? Has it improved over the last three to five years or only become more difficult? It's funny. You know, you hear that the EHR was supposed to create a huge lift in productivity. I think the data suggests it hasn't. We have some very talented providers and physicians that are really well adept and uh, have adapted well to our EHR. We have also some physicians who call it the 
the necessary evil. <laughs> and we have some physicians who just call it plain evil. And so it, it goes across the gamut. And I find that those providers that have been trained from almost getting into medical school and learning in the EHR from the get-go don't know anything else and think that it is absolutely a critical component to the way in which they manage a patient. And I'm, I don't want to necessarily be generational here because there are some aspects of providers that probably look at this and say, it was so much easier to document on paper and it was just easier way back when. Uh, candidly, I made my dad retire before he had to adopt an EHR um, because I knew he doesn't even know how to type. So that was going to be a huge barrier for him. He would have to rely on my mom to type. Um, so I've seen a big lift and big evolution, I think, in the last three to five years with regard to those providers that were a bit of the naysayer challenged by this in the early days. We've been live on our now Epic EHR for almost a dozen years. And in the early stages, it was a learning curve. And as we implement even new aspects to it, there's a learning curve, but people's expectations and getting used to it are there. So that transition of learning and evolving and becoming comfortable, it takes time. Every relationship takes time. So this is a relationship and uh, I'm, I'm happy that we're able to see the tools evolve so that again, we can get more productive in dealing with patients and actually having the personal interaction with a patient and the EHRs are really getting better at making that happen. Yeah, that's a funny story about your dad. The same thing with my dad. He retired right before they're about to implement um, Epic at his hospital. But, you know, if I asked my brother, who's also a physician, I don't think he would ever go back to paper, you know, no. so it just continues to evolve. Um, well, you know what, Jeff, this has been a great conversation. I so appreciate all of your insights and sharing your wisdom and knowledge with our audience. Um, we're going to wrap up this uh, episode of the Better Care Podcast, and I want to thank Chime for allowing us to partner on this podcast. And again, look forward to seeing some of our listeners at Chime Fall Forum next week. If you want to meet up with Jeff or myself, connect with us on LinkedIn. And thanks again, Jeff, for joining us. And until next time, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Amy.